Welcome to Entrepreneur Conundrum with Virginia Purnell, where growing entrepreneurs share how they get visible online. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Kevin M. O'Connor about how he helps bring people together, whether as family or old classmates. Kevin is the author of Two Floors Above Grief. His career has spanned over 50 years as a writer, teacher, principal, curriculum designer, and university instructor. He authors content and provides training in mathematics instruction, principal leadership, support for substitute teachers, LGBTQ advocacy, sexual health and family life, self-publishing, and marketing. He also sings and performs in theaters. He is active with Smart Ride, a bicycle group that raises funds for HIV awareness, treatment, and education. He resides in Fort Lauderdale with his husband, Leon, and their family includes five sons and seven granddaughters. Welcome, Kevin. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot, Virginia, for having me. I appreciate the time and, and the uh, staying connected uh, over these uh, these vast uh, miles uh, from from Alberta here to to the south southeast Florida. Um, I think we're probably separated by two or three time zones. I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, you're you're in Mountain Time. I am. Yeah. Okay. There. Yeah. So two, two time zones. Okay. Not, not too not bad. That, not that too bad. <laughs> no, just just a northern and southern difference too. So, but uh, that, that's another that's another latitude longitude type thing. Right. So, so how did you get to where you are today because it seems like you've had a vastness with like different experiences with your jobs and stuff too and mm-hmm. now you have a book like tell us all about that well how I got here um <laughs> I uh, I'll, you know, I'll start by saying I'm uh, I'm now in the septuagenarian category um uh, I guess mid 70s 73 so I've, I've had a journey that I've I've treasured and uh, certainly with lots with some ups and some downs and I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad to be here at this stage of my life. I know it's, for many, it's a tenuous part as we enter these senior years. And as I attend and and go to my fair share of um, celebrations of lives for friends and family, I I know that uh, there's something about this spot in my life that, um, you know, allows me to still have my own life and platform. But I know that... um, and that's part of the part of the premise of the book, a little bit. I know that uh, we never know when this is going to end. So I have, the older I get, the more I take a look at um, the importance of today, the importance of of what's happening in a given moment, because I know that um, we have no predictors, we have no way of knowing, you know, what what might happen next. So I, I, I so I have this vulnerability, I think, because of my age. But I also know that I have many family members and friends who lived in their 90s and hundreds, and I'm looking forward to whatever life has to offer in the next 20 years. So you asked me how I got here. I got here just by my upbringing, and that's part of the emphasis of the the book, Two Floors Above the Two Two Floors Above Grief. I uh, my uncle and my father owned and operated a funeral home out in the suburbs of Chicago, starting in 1930. I was born in 1950, and as I say in the book, um, there's a likely chance, <laughs> not confirmed, that my cousins and my brothers and I were pro- perhaps conceived in the same building where wakes and funerals were going on on the first floor. So there, I was always aware of that um, 
the balance of life and death and the the birth and death. I, I talk in the book about how among our families, we had, oh, uh, 15, uh, 17, 17 births in about a five-year period among my cousins and my brother's family. And so the, we had, we we're, our family was expanding as the clients were coming in to have their funerals. So all that was happening at the same time. So, but that uh, some people will say, well, why didn't you become an undertaker? I can, we can talk about that later, but um, I got led into a career, not led. I, I wanted to be a teacher and um, then extended that into teaching and being a principal and writing curriculum and giving presentations and speaking and all the things that happen when in an education world and uh, finally retired, not I say finally, I wasn't, I, I wasn't saying I got to do this. I got to retire, but I, I reached a point. Let's say I put it that way in 2020 when I decided I'm going to not be a full-time educator anymore. And that's what allowed me to have the time to write the book and to do what I'm doing now on this writing journey and this entrepreneur journey um, of of writing and marketing a book. I, I really wasn't an entrepreneur and as, as an educator because things were sort of taken care of. I, 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 I always had a, a superintendent or a community that was supporting me not only with my career, but also with my income. So it was different uh, than being an entrepreneur and being uh, now more dependent on myself to create that that income and that interest and that marketing. So that's a, a few sentences, a few minutes of how I got <laughs> to the point where I'm sitting in this chair in Fort Lauderdale. So. So with your book, how was that memory journey for you writing it? Oh, boy. Great question. <laughs> it was a memory journey, and it was something I wanted to do for a long time. And and um, I knew I had these stories in my head, but I didn't know what where to put them or what to do with them. And I also had the gift of, um, and the book is based on a lot of written communication that was exchanged between my family and me. And the letters were all saved and have traveled with me from California, where I lived for a while, to Illinois, where I lived for about 30 years, my actual roots. And now for the last 15 years down here in Fort Lauderdale, South, Southeast Florida. But those letters came with me. And I reached a point about 10 years ago, uh, unpacking file folders and boxes and things people had given me, things I had, letters I had, old stamps and envelopes. Out. What am I going to do with these? So um, I, I think part of what the question you ask is, is uh, and I forget what the question was, but I'm going to give an answer. <laughs> but I think what what what's happened in writing the book and putting these letters together, 700 pages that I've cataloged in four big uh, three-ring notebooks. But I, when I read all those letters and, um, and saw the characters of my parents coming out and my aunt and uncle and my cousins and saw them, uh, most, most of these people are deceased, um, but thought I knew the characters. But, and then when I got to the point of using these letters to, to provide the foundation for the book and had to type those letters, the content of those letters into my word processor here, I felt really like um, I was reliving their lives and really getting to know them. There was a, a real magic 
and taking their handwritten and type letters and then retyping them in myself and thinking, wow, <laughs> these are the actual words of these people. These aren't words I'm making up. Um, these aren't fictional. It, there's nothing fiction here. This is the real thing. And that was an ongoing impact that I had as I put the book together that connecting with these people that I thought I knew, but then um, hearing their hearing and feeling their voices and then having allowing me this opportunity to reflect more with them about who they were and, and the impact they had on me. Uh, and when I finally came up with a title, Two Floors Above Grief, it was a way to chronicle the stories that they presented in their letters, uh, the stories about my mom and my dad and my uncle, and my aunt and my three cousins and to litany here and my two brothers uh, and how we all created uh, lives within the midst of the grief. And uh, that, so back to your question, which I have forgotten. Um, <laughs> it's, that's what my current, my state of mind in writing the book was making all those connections. And that's what propelled me to keep going uh, and to keep up with the discipline to keep, keep the book going and the writing of the book. So what is your book, let's say about, like, is it more, is it like the story that you created as you interwove all of those letters? Or is it just like more of for you and your family, a genealogy family history type book? No, it, it's a little bit of both. Uh, in fact, um, I'm just having the, I just completed this week working with the narrator to do the audible version. So he, he got pretty intimate with the stories themselves. And he just said, he said to me this week, He's, he had such a joy in reading it and narrating it. And he said, this is not a book just about your family. He said, this is a book about all families. This is a book that has so many connections. Um, for, and I, that was part of my intention as I continued to write the book. I wrote it intentionally. And like you said, it was more a book to have a record of, of my family's experiences for the offspring that have, were now into the fourth or fifth generation of these two original couples. So it was more to uh, connect them. But as I wrote, and as I was working with my writing groups and, and editors, they were affirming for me too. This is this book has a broader appeal. So as uh, Frank said, Frank's the narrator said to me this week and reminded me, this is a story about um, not just for your family, but for lots of families. Uh, our, this because we are a funeral director family doesn't mean that we had, we had unique stories for sure. Um, but we could have been the, I could have been the child of a, of a contractor or an attorney or a plumber or an obstetrician or any, any number of careers. And I, I think that, you know, our, there's a weave from my stories to the stories of people who grew up within other professions. The, um, the book itself was set up and I said this in the very beginning of the book, and you know, a lot of memoirs will start from the in a sequential fashion and they'll go from the beginning. And I was born in 1950 and, and go from there. And but I decided that the book was based more on themes and stories. And so the way the chapters are set up, um, you know, it, it's it's uh one chapter is like the impact on our families during World War II. And I didn't treat that, I didn't treat that as a sequence that's in a part of the book that's called 
cultivating a culture of one family. And when I say cultivating a culture of one family, we had two families living in the same house um, in a connected apartments. So in order to get to my apartment on the third floor of this Victorian house, um, I had to walk through the apartment of my aunt and uncle and their three daughters. And we really couldn't, I couldn't get to that third floor without passing by or interacting with those, with those, uh, that other family. So in the undertaking profession, it's not unusual for people to live close by the funeral home or above it like we did, but usually it's separate quarters or separate apartments or separate houses in the neighborhood. This was really different. And that's uh, part of what made us unique. So when I looked at the book, I thought this is not a, this sure there's a sequence to this story, but there's also the things that made us who we were as, as a, as one family. And so, you know, I talk, I'm just looking at the table of contents right now as I'm sitting with you, because I have to be, even though I wrote it myself, I have to be <laughs> reminded of it. But just the idea is that we harmonized. We did a lot of music together. We struggled with smoking addictions and how we got, how we got through this. We, we, um, my parents were entrepreneurs themselves. I use the word entrepreneur in my book because in addition to the funeral home, they were always they were looking for other sources of income, whether it be making facial creams or figuring out ways to keep kids in their cribs or my aunt doing real estate. They always had these uh, these other parts of their lives. And and um, and then there's things in the stories about where there's tension in the family about uh, during the Vietnam War when I was a 20, 20 year old and active in protesting that didn't always sit well with my parents who thought, how's this going to reflect on the business if you're doing that? And so I, I spent quite a bit of the book talking in those, sharing the letters and the, and the, the emotions that came across from my mom and my dad and me as we, we went through not only what most, I think a lot of 20 year olds do with their parents uh, in terms of that yin and the yang and teens and young 20 somethings, but also this was the topic of of the Vietnam War, which was gives the book some historical perspective. So um, that's another thing Frank said, the narrator. He said, this is such a wonderful book to tie people, to tie readers' lives to what was happening in American and world history, because then they, the reader starts to think, oh, what was I doing during Jimmy Carter's presidency? Or <laughs> what was I, I don't mention Canadian leaders, but you know, what, what, what were they doing during those times? So I think that's a little bit different way that I approached this memoir, this, that, that could have been very sequenced, but it's now more of a, a theme, thematic approach to a memoir. Hey, I have to ask, cause this thought came to my mind when I read about your, like the overview about your book, how are Halloween's like growing up? <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. I had that same recently. I had that as a book event. Somebody, I don't know where it was, but I had to tell this person that myself and my brothers, we we did all the Halloween stuff, trick or treating, but our we didn't get trick or treaters at our house, <laughs> even though we had even though we had the lights on and we were a house in a neighborhood. It was rare to get trick-or-treaters. Not that mom and dad and my aunt and uncle weren't prepared. They had the candies and stuff. But there wasn't a lot of people, a lot of kids, ringing the door. <laughs> probably because the house had two or three outside doors. They didn't know which. Even though they were all let up, they probably didn't know which door to ring. I was always busy doing my own trick-or-treating. So I never really um, 
greeted any trick-or-treaters at the <laughs> house. And But even as a uh, high school kid, uh, when um, you know trick-or-treating was not as prevalent in my life, that Halloween night, I don't remember kids coming. So the, the, the house did have sort of a gothic look and old Victorian house. Uh, but I think this the idea of it being a funeral home would make <laughs> kids and families less inclined to ring the bell. Um, but that that's how <laughs> Halloween, I mean, I experienced Halloween as a kid, as any kid would but not as a, not as a greeter, not as a greeter. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So you lived on that scary house that no one went to. <laughs> yeah. And, and as much as the, um, the house had a night, it's still, it's still a funeral home almost a hundred years later, but um, owned by other families now, but it, it doesn't, um, it, it has a Victorian look to it. Uh, and well, you're not going to escape that. And um, and I suppose if it wasn't a funeral home, it would be just another house in the neighborhood, and right. it's still in a very residential neighborhood. So uh, there's plenty of other Victorian houses in the town I grew up, or other other towns I visited that just they're Victorian houses, but they're not funeral homes. <laughs> so I, I'm inclined to think that in in a neighborhood where there was a Victorian house that wasn't a funeral home. There'd probably be kids knocking at the door to trick or treat. So I think it's just that that aspect, that mystery. That um, in fact, a reader recently wrote to me and said, uh, after reading the book, she says, um, she says now like when I go and drive by a funeral home in a town, I'm going to have a whole different feeling about it. She said, I, I'm going to know that there's people that live there and there's lives that go on. She says, prior to reading the book, she always, it was sort of a, um, when she drove by a funeral home, she was, oh God, dead people are there and there's sadness there and there's always grief there and, and people don't want to go to that place. She says, now after reading the book, she sees a whole other side to it and she's going to know when she sees funeral homes, when she drives by them. There's probably a family that lives there. They have a whole set of stories that are detached from the grief that occurs um, when when there's a funeral there or a wake. Um, so I rambled a little bit here, but I think, um, and other people have said the house itself becomes a character in the book. And I spend some time talking about the the way it was built and who owned it and how it was designed and and how my family adapted it to a funeral home setting. But I think it's just um, it's it's a way it's a way to look at architecture too, and how we how we use the the houses that we have or the buildings that we have. But um, the, the, I'll quit. I'm rambling here. I'm rambling a little bit. <laughs> I actually thought of my cousin because he's a mortician and oh, yeah. he yeah and like he was raising a family and stuff too. And so it's kind of fun to like think back and reflect of like within my own family and stuff too. It's funny. I was re- listening to the, you had an interview with Ricky Smith. I think that was recent, wasn't it? Ricky Smith. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, she had mentioned, which, and she was, I charted this down. She was talking about her training and, and she didn't want to have trainings where the trainer was like a mortician. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I just thought, well, that's a different perception. I mean, I, I, uh, I've done a number of trainings myself, as did my father. Um, And somebody's perception or assumption about undertakers or um, is that or morticians 
as they might be glum and they might be um, have this um, conveyance of glumness or sadness or um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that, but it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, it's not always the way TV portrays no, it. No. <laughs> yeah. And, and even if it's, if it's portrayed in TV or if it's people's ideas, I think that's uh, one thing I talk in the book about is how good my aunt, my family, my mom and dad and um, aunt and uncle, how they spent a lot of time in the community and how they were active in organizations. And and they were doing it because they were people people and they liked to do that. But I also think it helped unpack uh, for the community members, the idea that, um, yeah, they a might, stigma. Uh, a stigma, the stigma of what an undertaker or a funeral home owner is. Um, yeah, they would get, they would get jibes and people would tease them and call them digger or uh, just make me sometimes jibe at them a little bit about being an undertaker or how's business today, you know, <laughs> or something like that. But on the other hand, uh, I think there's a whole, there's a whole life, which that a, a person that does this business has aside from the, the, the service they provide to their community and, and their job. So, yeah, it doesn't define who they are. No, it's just something they do. Right. Right. No more than a, um, a teacher, a principal, a teacher, a principal, a, a pediatrician. I mean, I, I, I think of a, an entertainer, you know, they, uh, yes, they have their life that it seems gives an allure or a celebrity life, but they, they have homes and families and, and, and their own stories that are apart from the, their career, their avocation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think that you have a different outlook or appreciation for death having grown up more closely to it than a lot of other people might have yeah thanks for that question um something i've thought a lot about myself and some a question that's been posed by other podcast hosts too it's uh, something and i i through writing the book through processing this life i've had and having attended a number of wakes and funerals and spoken at them uh, myself, I I don't think I approach this part of life any differently than somebody that hadn't grown up in my my environment. On the other hand, I don't know any different. You know that that was that was just part of what I was and who I was. But it it's never I it's never made it any easier. It's not easy. I shouldn't compare because I don't. I can't compare because I've only grew up in a funeral. But I have to say that when I encounter the death of a friend or a family, that it's hard. It's difficult. I I relish the um, the resources that are there now more so than they were before about how to handle grief and how to, how to accept grief, how to make it a part of your life. Uh, I'm following. Uh, a Google thread that says uh, that talks about the health benefits of grief, you know, so that just um, my approach to grief is probably much like what everybody else's is. Yes. I have this, this idea that, and this acceptance, I think maybe more differently than other people. I won't say more, but it's probably different. I have this acceptance that death can happen at any time. Mm -hmm. um and i'm just as vulnerable to that as as anybody else is 
just because I was raised uh, by funeral directors doesn't mean I have a choice, doesn't mean that there's some guiding influences that is going to prevent me from getting sick or <laughs> prevent me from getting hit by a car or going down on a plane or whatever happens. Or um, So I have that, I guess, outlook. I, I have friends who who sort of put death in the background and they don't Oh, I'm not going to get ready. Why should I get ready? Uh, it's not going to happen. Of course, it's going to happen to you. <laughs> but I mean, we we can't uh, we can't put it aside. Even now, I, I'm thinking, I'm looking into things to help my own kids be better prepared for when I pass. So making sure my paperwork's in order and making sure that they can step into uh, a situation when it happens for me, that they will have some that tension and pressure lifted off them. So. We have to prepare for it, and I, uh, as hard as it is, um, but I think that's where being the son of an undertaker helps me have a different realization of that and experiencing what my parents went through to get when I, they greeted a client or when they met with a client or when they got that phone call that said how somebody died. You just sort of say, wow, how could that ever happen? And it happens. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Well, that's a grim topic. I think. I <laughs> well, you know, it can it's be grim, part of the circle. <laughs> yeah, circles. That is. That's 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 it. And I, I guess even laughing at it just now, I catch myself. Oh, I shouldn't be laughing. And um, on the other hand, there is. I just returned from the celebration of life for a good friend of mine in Burlington, Vermont, and there was many aspects of joy to that. And I think I've taken to calling. When people die, I have talked taken more to say, I'm not going to memorial service. I'm going to a celebration of life because I think um, we can't get past the idea that we're all going to die, but we can celebrate what they contributed and, and what they brought to this world and what they brought to my life. And I think that's that's become more of my focus as, as I get older and encounter more and more of these. <laughs> so that's how I like to look at it like to celebrate them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, let, let me cry. Let me smile. Let me, let me laugh. It's okay. Uh, let me tell a joke. Um, and there was plenty of laughter at the celebration of life. I went to 10 days ago, there was tears too, but I think that's all part of this. Like you mentioned earlier, this is all part of the cycle. This is all part of a beshert in the Yiddish term. It's all part of what's meant to be what's meant to be. Well, so. even life itself isn't always tears or always happiness, right? Like there's mm -hmm. all the emotion in that too. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think in working on the book and doing some of the getting out and talking to people about the book and doing having uh, these uh, wonderful encounters with, with you and others on podcast, it's universal. And I think that's part of what I've gotten a taste of in reading some people's comments about the book that even though I tell enough, I tell the stories that I tell that people connect to say, Hey, this whole cycle of birth, life, death is something we all share. And mm -hmm. um, whether in my case, I was two floors above it. We're all surrounded by it. We're embedded in it. We're immersed in it. And there's laughter and there's joy and there's tears and, Sunrise, sunset, filler on the roof. I mean, there's all that that's there. And that's, um, I have, I also reference a lot of musicals <laughs> in the book, but um, 
that that's all that's all about life and so that that's where i that's my story and i'm going to stand by it <laughs> that's my story and i'm sticking to it, sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're on podcasts to market your book. Are there any other things that you're doing to help you promote it? Yeah. And I think that's, I love your title conundrum um, <laughs> because it is a conundrum and, uh, but a pleasant conundrum. And I, I think I can, there's plenty of stuff out there and you probably find this in people that reach out to you, how to make your podcast better. If you come to this class, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 this person will promise you that you'll get a thousand more attendees at your podcast. I, I'm assuming you get those kind of promotions. <laughs> I get them as an author. I get them as a, you know, how to sell books. And, and um, what I'm come to terms with though, is you, ha you could take all the classes. I could take all the classes I want. Well, I can't afford them, but I could take all the <laughs> classes that I wanted and how to do this, but I still got to do it myself. And they can say, this is how you get on more podcasts. This is how you get in front of people. You got to do it yourself. Um, and so in, in writing and being a self-published author of one book currently, I got some other, other books on the works, but it's all up to me to do this, to market it and to find the opportunity. So what I'm finding is working in this conundrum, pleasant conundrum, is to get in front of people. And whether I do it in a format such as yours, but even and locally. Oh, so in two weeks, I'm going to speak at the local Rotary Club. I've set up things with a coffee shop and a restaurant. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'll be at uh, a place in Flor Lauderdale called Charlie Street uh, Coffee and Flowers. And they've given me a, a, a table to sit at uh, from 8 to 10. And as people come in, I greet them, I talk to them, I share my story, I hand them a postcard that if they want to buy, the, I have books available if they want to buy, but if they want to order it on Amazon and they can, I direct them to my website and I make these connections. Like the guy last week said, I don't read books, but hey, when's the audio coming out? I said, hey, in about two weeks. So if I hadn't gone to that coffee shop to meet that guy, he wouldn't have known about the book or known that he couldn't possibly add this book to his audible audio uh, book repertoire. So I find that, um, and I have a list of things somewhere. Oh, here it is. <laughs> Here's my, my uh, three, two floors above grief lift to do, but now it's, it's on a spread. It's on sheets that are about four pages long, <laughs> but I just keep adding things. And every time I, uh, I just keep, but the, the main thing I have to keep focused on is I have to get in front of people. And I, but I love that <laughs> uh, as a school teacher for many years, as a school principal, as uh, public, I also did a lot of um, training in my work. Uh, being in front of people isn't, isn't a problem for me. So I just have to find the outlets and it could be a rotary club of um, 10 people, or I'm going to do a, a Zoom a book club right after I get off with you um, with seven or eight people that are back in Illinois so that we set up. So I do that and that's, that's available to any of your listeners. If, if they're intrigued enough with the book, I'll, I'll come to your book club. So any opportunity I have to showcase the book. Um, the other thing I'm doing this week is outreaching. Uh, I was just, the book was just focused, uh, a focus or presented at the national funeral directors association annual convention in Las Vegas. So the, the book had a place in the program there. But also I had 
people that were at the conference that were talking about it. And now I'm trying to find a way to get to the uh, 25,000 funeral directors in our country and your country and get a personal message out to them. Hey, this is a book that will might help you. This is a book that connects with those of us in our industry. Actually, one of my first podcasts was with a funeral director in Toronto. So I know that's a little ways from Alberta, but it's still in your country. Um, right. <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's some of the things I'm doing. It's just, it's gotta be, um, you know, whether I'm marketing, uh, and I tell stories in, in, in the book about how my uncle in 1930 marketed at his new funeral home in a town he'd never lived in before. He had no, and that's the town he stayed in, but I learned from him. He worked in the, he got out in the community. He figured out who his target group was at that time. It was Irish Catholics in the town. How do you market to an Irish Catholic in 1930? Yeah, you, <laughs> you, you, find, you use the name of Newt Rockney. I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with that, but Newt Rockney was the coach of Notre Dame in 1930, and he had become a national figure. So an Irish Catholic football coach with six, six national championships, that's how he marketed his funeral home. And that's how he got help to get customers. When they needed his services, they said, hey, I'm going to call that Irish guy that talks about Newt Rockney. <laughs> so I, I sort of, I use him as a model, even though that model is almost 100 years old now. He got in front of people. He found ways to do it. Well, certainly, we have different ways uh, now, 100 years later, to do this. So the principal principal uh, ple not principal like i was doing <laughs> the principle of the whole thing is just to be to make yourself present um i've read about other self-published authors and they get frustrated about their sales and i just say but they're just waiting for people to come to them i gotta yeah, go to people i gotta just like i'm um, sorry you like what you're doing with your podcast we gotta go to the people so hmm. I think that was an answer to your question, I think. So yeah. what big goals do you have in the next year or two? Thanks, thanks. Um, the goals I have now um, are to write another book. One of the, the, the people that I work with uh, through a group called My Word Publishing, which uh, really help self-published authors with their marketing. They also help with their authoring. I came to them when my, my book was already written. But um one of the things that um, they see, got to write another book and um, one book will, can feed off the other. So one of my goals is to write that another book. I have, I have more material from my family that I can write about. I have uh, a book, I, some books I'd like to write that tie more in with my education profession. So that's one of my goals for the next uh, one or two years. I want to do more um, uh, direct presentations either in this way uh, or online or personally and uh, get, you know, they call, you can call them speaking gigs or speaking, whatever you want to call them. But um, I want to get more proficient at that and uh, more uh, make more context so I can do that because there's, and I want to do it of course, to let people know about the book and the books that I will also have on there but also to share some of what you and I have talked about, whether it be um, grief or whether it be um, talking to people about 
hey, you've got all these letters and you found in your family files or they're in closets and attics mm-hmm. and what are you going to do with them? What can they what can they tell you? Um, what can you do so you don't throw them away? Uh, there's 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 nuggets of, of character. There's nuggets of legacy in there. So I have a, a way that I can teach people this based on how I did it, how to organize these letters, how to make sense of them, how to. So those are some of the things I want to do in the next two or three years is increase my outreach, increase. Um, and again, thinking, how much time do I have left, Kevin? There's more <laughs> of a um, there's more of an intensity on that. And if I had thought this way as a 30 year old, I would think I would have the luxury of thinking, oh, I have all this time, I, presumably. <laughs> presumably but now that i'm 70 and have the gift of these years 73 have the gift of these years and still know that i've got some time left I, it, there's sort of an immediacy to these next two or three years to go back to your question so that's what i want to do in the next two to three years have you put like all those letters and stuff on like ancestry or family history sites and stuff like that um <laughs> No. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, actually, when a rel- when I'm, I'll take that back a little bit. When a person that I've connected with on uh, ancestry.com, I can I will add maybe a, 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 a quote from that letter, or I'll put the whole letter on there. I guess another thing for my next two to three years to do is to digitize these letters. Um, and I've had I've been approached by a couple of the universities I attended to say, would you like to put these letters in our archives? Um, even though I, they're, these letters are sitting in the in the closet right behind me, <laughs> over my shoulder here, they're there. They're all cataloged. But you bring an idea to mind that uh, to when I see an opportunity, I haven't looked for opportunities. When I see an opportunity, when somebody is referencing my uncle. Um, I'd say, Hey, I've got this letter. I'm going to put it, I'm going to add it to his, as you can do in ancestry.com. You can, you can add a file or a note. So other people get the pleasure of reading what he said aside, mm-hmm. even though I might've quoted it in my book, there's another way that I can, I can put that on there. So, but yeah, you, you added to my list of things I want to do in the next uh, two to three years to figure out the, not only encourage people to save their own letters, but to keep reminding people just the impact that it's had on my life and the way it's been able to make my life come not full circle, but certainly become a part of that circle. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about? Oh, let's see. (laughs) Um, Well, I think, um, oh, parenting, because I think parenting, certainly has different uh now that i'm the parent of a 41 year old and a 39 year old um still there's still challenges there that i i never i guess i didn't know any better i mean i guess at age 30 when my kids were in their preschool years i thought um oh this is going to get easier or the parenting's gonna parenting challenging <laughs> but it will go away uh when i'm a 70 year old no, parenting um, from this perspective is is still challenging. I want I have one child who has estranged himself from me. That that presents its own set of challenges. Um, you know, one of your one of your uh, questions 
was the was what was the best I've ever best advice I've ever received. And, mm-hmm. and um, one of them, one of those pieces, those nuggets comes from a counselor I've been working with to work through the the challenges that estrangement presents to a parent. And in in her work in our dialogue, uh, she said, just Kevin, keep honoring my happiness. And she said, honor your joy. And um, don't, she said, she learned from me in, in our session. She said, you're a pretty happy person. <laughs> she said, even though you've got this, this struggle going on, don't lose sight of your happiness. You are a ha- you share your happiness with so many other people. Keep on doing that. So you asked, so parenting is, is something we didn't touch upon. And I touch upon it in my book a little bit, for, not a little bit. <laughs> it's a memoir about how I was raised. Of course, I touch upon it. But I also end the book by uh, my role as a parent to another one of my children and and um, what joy that brings me. And not to say that the joy, I have plenty of joy from the, uh, the son that's just chosen to estrange himself. But parenting continues. It continues mm-hmm. until until I reach that end. And um, I think um, that's... I, I'd like to talk more about that, but our time's limited. But I think that's one thing that you ask, what would I bring up that I didn't get a chance to, was a whole range of parenting experiences. And you, you've alluded to what you're experiencing now with your own children. Um, it just, it goes on and on and on. So it doesn't end, it just evolves. Evolves, it evolves. And and for us, for me to say, um, I'm gonna, what's gonna happen next? I don't, I don't know anymore what's going to happen next with my 40 year olds than I did when they were 13, you know, as much as I'd like to have this, like as much as I wanted to have a sense of control, I didn't, I'm especially, I know that as I look back now, I didn't have a sense of control. I just had to provide the most kind of nurturing and loving environment that I could. So I was ready for those unexpected things. (laughs) So, So I could be ready. So so that was that'd be one topic that um, something we didn't share or talk about. Well, thank you. So, where can we find out more about you, your book, stuff like that? Okay, well, the best uh, best general place to go to about about me is just to go to my website, which is my name, Kevin O'Connor. Uh, then it's Kevin O'Connor Author dot uh, com. That's the name of the website. The book can also be located at Amazon just by typing in uh, Two Floors Above Grief. And that gives wonderful overviews about the book and uh, some rev- and reviews from other readers and uh, what they think about the book. And of course, it gives you a way to purchase the book too. And it can it's currently in Kindle and in paperback, but the uh, auto, audible version is due to come out October 1st. So for those people that uh, enjoy that kind of uh, contact with literature, uh, they they can do it with an audio version as well. So those are the website. Um, and then the website and, I'll, and I'll, the Amazon site are two ways to learn more about me and what I've been working on. Uh, the website also conveys some of my educational background and, and uh, some of the things I'm working on education-wise still. The, um, yeah, the, I have a, a newsletter. We, act, we talked about outreach before. And the other thing I'm doing with 
people is I sent out a weekly newsletter. I'll be working on that today. It comes out on uh, either Wednesday, Thursdays, or Fridays. But it talks about the the book, talks about um, different things happening in my life, whether it's the presentations I'm making, or last week I talked about the celebrational life service I went to with uh, with for my friend. I also feature a podcast. Uh, in every newsletter. So here's, as soon as yours is released, we'll, I'll feature that on, on my newsletter. That, so I, I do that and get get the word out about, I also have a thing on there, where on earth is two floors above grief? And readers take pictures of, of themselves in different parts of the world and I or the country, and I they send me their picture. And then I just let people know a little bit about that area or uh, their travels. So I just, I try to create a, com a community, not only through my website, but through my newsletter and through contacts that people give me through their reading of the book. So. Fun. Well, thank you again for being with us today. Okay. Thanks. And I, uh, I will keep following your stories and the, your other uh, guests have given me some ideas about this conundrum of entrepreneurship <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's fun to talk to you well thank you have a great day okay thank you thank you so much for joining us today be sure to subscribe and leave some love through a review and i'll catch you on the next episode